<laughs> All right, welcome back, everybody. This is the Fault Line Podcast. My name is Alex Davis. I'm the host today and most days, in fairness. This is accompanying edition number 895, and joining me is Tommy, our illustrious editor. Hello, Rafi's back, yay. Yeah, Rafi's back from Scotland. <laughs> I'm back. Back in town. So, yes, <laughs> as, as we mentioned last week, we're on a bit of a funny summer schedule because we're all slamming holidays in. Um, so... Yeah, it's been it's been an interesting kind of week, I guess. We've been in the summer lull um, in terms of news, but we had a decent event, and then it's been a bit hectic on on Rethink TV side. But yeah, Tommy, the news. How how was the past week? Well, yeah, I, well, I think we all enjoyed our time at Connected TV World Summit, especially um, you, Alex, who was treated to the live Q and A audience Q and A interaction, which Rafi and I weren't given the privilege of unfortunately but um even so there were some quite decent pre-recorded uh sessions on offer my favorite uh quote of the lot uh came from a chat with virgin media's chief tv and entertainment officer who described aggregation as a horrible word and that was <laughs> music to my ears because um we kind of have to endure companies just bombarding us with aggregation this aggregated that left right in chelsea on virtually a daily basis and as a result i think the word has just lost all meaning and all value um i mean uh th- that was kind of the point made that pe- haven't pay tv operators always been aggregators anyway they take a bunch of tv channels and package them up and now they're aggregating ott video services and apparently that warrants being called a super aggregator I mean, yeah, give me a break. But um, uh, so David from uh, Virgin Media, he uh, shares our dislike of the term, clearly. But that doesn't mean it isn't considered an important part of the uh, Virgin Media or the Liberty Global strategy, in particular, the the new TV 360 platform, which launched not that long ago as the first uh, Horizon technology platform in the UK, UK, which is, of course, based on RDK. But what was really funny I found really funny is that right after he gave aggregation a bit of a bashing, there was a panel session offering a so-called aggregation masterclass right after his comments. So I think that was massively undermined, which was funny. But um, in this panel, there was another really refreshing voice in the form of uh, Jessica from uh, Nordic Telco Telly2, who's the, who's the um, director of the Comhem Play uh, video streaming uh, department. So um, I can't I can't explain how relieving it is to hear someone from an operator just talk honestly and openly and accept the trends that we write about week in week out so she said that tele2 is currently re-evaluating its role as an aggregator and she said that from a technology point of view tele2 doesn't add any value anymore because anyone can broadcast ott which i think is such a powerful admission from an operator considering that so many pay tv operators are just still in the denial stage so Hats off to um, to Telly Two, and she she thinks that the only way, the only place Telly Two can add any value in TV is in apps. But she admitted that her team is still in the process of figuring out how to work with different content partners. And I thought that comment in particular was interesting because that tied back to something that Virgin Media said earlier on about traditional pay TV operators being in better positions in content negotiations so that's kind of one leg up that these types of companies have over the competition i'm not not really that clued up on on how that works and the intricacies of why that's easier for operators but um but there we go that's something they've got and uh, up until this point in the panel it was very sort of europe 
centric so it was nice to get a bit of balance from pbs which is a uh, a u.s non-profit tv station group whose cmo uh, ira rubenstein said that search and discovery pretty much sucks on every platform um so yeah strong comments and he must have a lot of spare time if he's tuning into every single platform in the in the states but uh, he seemed frankly quite pissed off about the challenge of getting his organization's content floated to the surface on on other platforms saying it's really hard to cut through the noise all the usual stuff really and circling back to uh, where we started which is aggregation he said the curated experiences are much more powerful for a company like pbs which shows the the difference and while aggregation of multiple brands at a higher level he thinks is something that consumers just don't get so yeah that was um that was a fun couple of sessions that we that we tied in and that um dovetailed quite nicely with another story following on from that which um dives more into tivo's data strategy and some comments made at connected tv world summit um if you want to get your teeth into the future of personalization and things like that which um i warn gets a little bit creepy well, yes, I, I'm going to look forward to digging into that one. Um, but no, like the the content discovery thing that came up in the the session I was in too, um, as being a bigger problem than the you know multiple SVOD subs per house. So mm. yeah, it was a decent event that one. So thanks very much, Tommy. Thank you. Uh, we'll, we'll jump forward to Rafi's piece now, uh, which is NPCU's Sea Flight spreads wings, lifting UK broadcast ad propositions. So Rafi, could you tell us more? Yeah, sure. Uh, sea flight is something I feel like I've touched upon tangentially in a lot of articles in the past year, but I'm re- it's always kind of been a, you know, just a just a word and a paragraph down the bottom. I haven't really, really explored what it is. Um, so essentially, is this uh, ad tool developed by NBC Universal in 2018, so they could sort out their internal reporting to advertisers uh, before they had a problem where they reported all the ad campaigns on their linear service and their on-demand service, and they were both very much siloed. Advertisers had to look in two separate places, and they wanted to sort out a method where an advertiser could just log into one place and see how a campaign has performed across both mediums on the same network. Um, Obviously, NBC is owned by Comcast, who acquired Sky, and once that happened, Sky essentially started using SeaFlight for its own internal uh, affairs and clearly really liked it and thought it should maybe get all the other UK broadcasters on board. So ITV child next. And we're now at the stage where it's essentially spanning every major ad supported UK broadcast network, which they're saying is really a global first for any kind of uh, attributional measurement standard to be used across a whole country's major broadcast network at least for ads obviously we have the bbc but for every ad supported channel um the three kind of ring leaders are sky itv and channel four and they own a bunch of other things like five and discovery and then a couple of smaller channels too um and it's weird because sea flight you know it sounds like it should be simple really you're just combining linear commercial data broadcaster vod impressions and then packaging it into a post campaign evaluation tool but um as a webinar i went to the webinar they did for the announcement last week uh and was told many times that it's not easy (laughs) there was a lot of heavy lifting involved uh they had to combine panel data and census data and all these forms of data presented completely differently um with different criteria for every broadcaster organization and attack player that has any stake in the process um so it was a big you know a long haul sorting out this mess essentially uh, and then another big technical feat that they tried to do was uh, deduplicating ad impressions. So if you 
find and there's no way to properly do this to be like this person watched this here they didn't watch it here it's all guesswork essentially uh they use barb data which is kind of the, the uk's nielsen i guess uh to work out how many people were probably in front of each screen be it on demand or linear and then try and do the guesswork accordingly calculate well you know if there's this many people here then they probably weren't watching here and they're trying to remove the possibility of uh, essentially advertisers uh being told that more people saw their ad than actually did see the ad. Um, now, C-Flight was backed by a lot of different tech vendors. You had RSMB on a lot of the data modeling, a lot of the things I just described, and uh, any UK advertiser that is advertising on the linear network or the um, on or on the video on demand channels that are run by the broadcasters, they can access a tech edge data portal. And usually these costs to access the tech edge provides portals for all kinds of things. But Seaflight are essentially paying for advertisers to access it for free. They can get this uh, reporting at no cost to them. Um, it's, we can kind of think of this as really, even though it is live and there's a big song and dance about it, it really is a beta version because currently it's only reporting on all adults, which is a bit weird as under 18s are very much the incremental reach that advertisers want to get from video on demand or OTT services. You know, that's if you, you know, if you're pushing a campaign on OTT, it's likely you're going for the younger audience. Um, but on the other hand, it kind of shows how much of an impetus there was for just getting this out the door ASAP. Clearly, demand for this tool is very strong um, and it is really needed in the UK. Uh, kind of one shocking stat I saw was that linear and video on demand is 91% of all video advertising viewed in the country. So that's missing out on quite, quite a big stake if you're not uh, accounting for video on demand. And Barb only reports on linear. Um, they found that in one example case study, by using C-Flight to add in the video on demand um, impressions, you're able to lift campaign reach from 58% to 66%, which is fairly significant. Um, and all this kind of left me wondering where, you know, if C-Flight is essentially able to take off across the whole of the UK, where's it headed next? Um, Europe makes sense because public service broadcasters also have a lot of their own uh, VOD services. And Sky, which was the the in for Seaflight in the UK, obviously has quite an extensive European footprint. You know, Germany, Austria, Switzerland, Italy. Um, and one of the Seaflight leadership actually confirmed over email. I'm not sure if this has technically been announced yet, um, but they didn't say don't say it. But um, Pro Seven Sat One's Seven One Entertainment is launching an ad product in July um, with that in. So yeah, that will kind of be the first, I guess, debut of Seaflight in Germany and quite promising that we could see maybe a similar nationwide uh, pickup of the technology. Uh, the US is a bit less certain because even though Seaflight was born there, uh, it's a lot more fragmented. And also Seaflight depends a lot on a trusted data and measurement source. In the UK, they've got the advantage that there's there's general consensus around Barb being, you know, doing an okay job or British people are too polite to say that it's not. But in the US, there's loads of arguments about Nielsen and then Comscore is the alternative, but you know, old old habits die hard, as I said in the piece. So I think there'd have to be an industry-wide consensus about which measurement vendor they're going to trust before it's possible in the US. Yep, that sounds like a, a road for some significant bickering. Mm. <laughs> but yeah, Germany, France, Western Europe—that that sounds like a, a good next step. Yeah, thanks very much, Rafi. Uh, sweet. So we'll, we'll jump into our last long form article now. Um, it's my turn to to ramble a bit, I guess. Um, this was the news that Netflix taps video game well with Ubisoft, and Microsoft gets dongly. Um, so the the gist here is that um, Netflix is looking to create a 
uh, set of uh, series, animated series, in partnership with Ubisoft. Uh, while Amazon has also finally launched its Luna uh, game streaming service in the US. And then the last little bit of news is that Microsoft is working with TV makers to integrate the Xbox streaming service uh, natively into smart televisions. And then it also sort of quietly confirmed that it was working on a HDMI dongle. Um, so then that led us on a little bit of a, um, a sort of history lesson, a bit, a bit of discovery, I guess, um, looking at Hollywood's relationship historically with uh, video games. Um, but there's a, uh, there's a sort of, significant uh, step that you have to take first, which is examining uh, viewing habits. And this was a survey that we'd spotted a few weeks ago, but it came from Deloitte and they were polling um, 2000 uh, people asking uh, what they were sort of most uh, happy doing as entertainment in their spare time. So among millennials, uh, the top, the most uh, you know, selected option was watching movies and TV at home, uh, which scored 18% of the you know the, the picks and then that was followed by video games in second place on 16. Um, so the thing is with Gen Z which is everyone born between 97 and 2012 uh, video games score way higher they score 26 percent. Uh, second place is music on 14, web browsing is 12, social media was fourth uh, on 11 and then TV and movies at home finally score 10 percent so fifth place. So Gen Z 10 percent uh, in fifth, and then for millennials, it's 18% in first. So there's there's been this big shift, and, and it's happened quite recently, um, where video games are a primary source of entertainment. But that might sound um, a little bit uh, panicky for the Hollywood types, but what it should mean is that all that sort of video game intellectual property and brands and franchises, they should be um, kind of lucrative opportunities to um, make sort of premium dramatized uh, video content that you can bring people to SVOD and AVOD services with. Um, so looking back in the past, uh, Mortal Kombat, Tomb Raider and Resident Evil are about the only ones that have had sort of any success. Um, but while they might have turned profits at the box office, they've been kind of critically panned. Um, and even the World of Warcraft movie um, only managed about 28% on Rotten Tomatoes um, and had sort of a box office of $400 million uh, globally. So, you know, th there's been attempts, um, but it's notable really that Netflix seems to be the one that cracked the movie well, the, the on-screen dramatizations of, of uh, video game titles with The Witcher, um, which scores 67% on Rotten Tomatoes among critics, uh, which initially doesn't look very good, but then you look at the audience ratings, it's 91% um, there. So The Witcher seems to have been massively popular. There's some third-party data that says it was the most popular um, thing on Netflix uh, at launch. It costs about $10 million per episode, which is you know up there with a the later Game of Thrones. So you know a lot of money was thrown at this, and it does seem to have been a success. Uh, and then a little bit of a virtuous circle um, is that sales of The Witcher 3 uh, jumped about 500% on the back of the popularity of the uh, the show. So that is a little bit of evidence that suggests that you know it, it might go well. Um, and Netflix is having further cracks at this. So it is doing two shows with Far Cry uh, and one with Splinter Cell, both sort of first-person shooters. And maybe they won't be as successful as like that high fantasy um, subject matter in The Witcher, um, which themselves were based on a series of fairly popular um, novels. 
Um, but Netflix also had a bit of success with like an anime adaption of Castlevania, which is now in, in like its fifth season. Um, so yeah, it's on, on the one hand, like the sort of Hollywood realm, the, the SVOD services are moving towards video games, um, to sort of bring new stories to screen. Uh, but then the second part is that tied up in this is a sort of a, a big shortage of consoles, um, which is also probably having something of an effect on video game playing time. Um, so the launch of Luna from Amazon is significant. It's six dollars a month. That's an introductory price uh, if you're a Prime member. So that's on top of Prime. Um, I reckon it'll probably end up about nine to fifteen um, in terms of the going rate. Uh, and then Microsoft, of course, is charging a bit less. Um, it's also doing some strange partnerships with telcos, where it's bundling the cost of an Xbox console uh, in with the sort of the ultimate pass. Um, in in the same way that you used to be able to buy sort of secondary de- devices and tablets and things uh, with your smartphone deal or, or with your your cable uh, bundle. So yeah, dongles are on the way. Streaming makes sense for cloud gaming because it's hard to buy a console right now. And yeah, the the sort of traditional lines are kind of blurring slightly in terms of what we do uh, on the big screen. So yeah, that that was a fun piece to to do some research on. Um, so yeah, that's the end of the long form content. Now um, we're going to dive into the worth noting section. And of course, as is tradition, Rafi, five years ago today, uh, what was happening? Uh, stick with the gaming theme because uh, Tencent snapped up SoftBank's 84% stake in Supercell, which is a Finnish games firm, for 8.6 billion dollars, uh, poising Tencent to become a world leader in online gaming. It was quite an impressive flip from SoftBank because they had acquired uh, just over 51, 51% of Supercell uh, for just 1.5 billion three years earlier. So that's what, like a at least a fourfold growth in value. Um, Supercell is most famous for creating uh, Clash of Clans, which was you know a huge mobile game a few years ago. Uh, Tencent had a history in PC gaming, uh, but this was largely put on the back burner as WeChat rose to prominence. They kind of looked like this was about to tip the other way. Um, and even though it was more famous for its social media uh, kind of products, uh, over half of Tencent's 15 billion revenue in 2015 was derived from gaming. And it was expected that with Supercell on the books, this would balloon to 13 billion from around seven and a half billion. Um, and that was around 13% of the entire market. And Supercell's annual income has grown a fair bit since 2015. It was 780 million back then. And they reported a 1.5 billion revenue uh, in 2020. Whoa. Well, lots of money in yeah mobile games. Have you have you heard of the the term whales? That's who you're no. targeting. So the idea there is you give away the game for free, right? And nearly everyone never pays anything. Mm. But the point is you catch a whale who is willing to spend obscene amounts of money in these games on like power ups and and different like character skins and things. So the free to play games. I guess. Yeah, yeah. So there's a big debate there on on whether these people are like financially sound or if they're just kids who've like managed to get access to mummy's credit card. <laughs> I was just about to say that. That's definitely, most majority of whales are definitely kids. Yeah. <laughs> kids, kids, or, or slightly sad, sad older men, I think. But um, yeah, tell me anything else in here you want to draw our eyes to. Yeah, well, we had a, a few big name CEOs strutting their stuff this week, making a few comments. We had Disney's Bob Chapek come out. Denying reports about launching an AVOD tier of Disney Plus, there were quite a few suggestions that it might follow in the footsteps of HBO Max and Paramount Plus in that regard. And we also had uh, NBC Universal CEO Jeff Shell describe this year's TV upfronts as the strongest in the history of the company, although he didn't 
give it give away any numbers unfortunately so um i haven't got any proof of that but yeah bold claims sweet um all right so my little last tidbit um google is throwing uh, devices at youtube tv customers and notably those include the new TiVo Stream devices, I believe. So that's an Android TV version, but under the, the TiVo sort of brand name. And and that's topical to what Rafi and I are working on. Um, so, yeah, that's 2021. That's the start of a curve, uh, hopefully, for TiVo. Um, right then. Thanks very much, chaps. We, we're done for Fault Line 895. Um, will we see you next week? I think we will, Tommy. So what's happening in 896? No, well, no. You're both on holiday, but I can can do a solo pod if you want. Yeah, solo Raffy pod. Yeah, good point. Go for it. Yeah, no, it it pains me to say that we've got a big fat nothing for you guys next week, but back stronger the following week. That is true. I'm I'm in sort of smooth brain mode at the moment, so it's all a blur. But um, all right then, we will we'll catch you. You've got your holiday shirt on. How could you forget? Do yeah. Well, it's an audio (laughs) medium, so like not even I'm paying attention to my camera. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> anyway it's been a long week i'm gonna go mow a lawn in a minute so um right we will we'll see you soon bye bye for me cheers all bye bye